All right, Worldwide Bible Class, Pastor Wolfmuller, joined by all of you, The Life of Jacob with Luther. Let's do it. So we are almost, we are almost at Jacob's vow at Bethel, but we're not quite there yet. We still are, Luther, so Luther's discussing the text up a little bit above, and how it is that Jacob can be sent to Haran by his mom and dad when they are pagan. And here we we have Luther discussing faith. And can we remember this beautiful section that faith, did we, I'm sure we did this. We should learn patience from the example of the patriarchs. They were tried in every way, yet not without sin, from which Christ alone was free from sin. Everyone else was a sinner. Surely Jacob was not tried without sin. He was not Christ himself. He did not have a flesh free from sin. But he had faith. Faith wrestled against the flesh. See that? Flesh. We talked about last week how Melanchthon in the Book of Concord defines worship this way. Faith fighting despair. Faith is not a laughable cold quality that snores and is idle in the heart. No, it is agitated and harassed. This is such an interesting way of talking about faith. Faith is agitated and harassed by horrible trials concerning nothingness and the vanity of divine promises, the emptiness of divine promises. For I believe in Christ, whom I do not see, but I have his baptism, sacrament, etc. Here then one must struggle and do battle against unbelief and doubt. But formless faith, so this is, this has to do with, mm, this is the Catholic idea that faith is formed in love. And this goes back to Thomas Aquinas and maybe even the earlier medieval theologian. And so Luther is picking up the fight here with Catholicism. Formless faith is powerless and cannot sustain and bear those assaults. True living faith however, which overcomes doubt, is in reality an exceedingly lively quality. If indeed, this is what it should be called. And it is, rest, it is a restless blessing in our heart. Can you, can you think about this? When someone believes, when someone has faith, they have a restless blessing in the heart. The chair's not in the right spot. So which the devil assails and attacks every single moment. So that this, so that faith changes everything. Remember, uh, did we look at Luther's introduction to the Romans when he defines faith a living, busy, active thing? We maybe we should look at that. Someone remind me. Which the devil says in text: One learns and feels in the agony of death above all, whether it's a formless faith or a true and living faith. Uh, for a Christian, when a Christian dies, is buried, is consumed by worms, in short, he's reduced to nothing. Uh, here's the um let me see if i can get to the nothing uh nothing where was the nothingness here see this is uh, the um this is the nothingness that faith is fighting against so so what does he mean the trials concerning nothingness well look uh a christian dies is buried is consumed by worms in short he's reduced to nothing this is certainly contrary to all the divine promises. So the Lord says, no, it's not that we're going to be reduced to nothing. It's that we're going to live forever. 
It said we're going to stand before him in eternal life. But what do I see? I see death and burial. I see worms, not glory. I see dirt, not thrones. This is certainly contrary to all the divine promises. What should, then should he do? He should. Then he surely finds out that faith is not a meaningless quality since it overcomes the terror of death and says, even if you were to bear on your neck the burden, not only of death, but of a thousand devils and hell itself, yet I will not make God a liar. So the question is, the key question of faith is this, does God tell the truth? For such agony in the hearts of the godly are disposed to say, even though hell were to pour out all its flames and spew out every evil on me, yet I remain in that faith. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. Lord God, preserve me through Christ. Lest hmm. Lest blasphemy which says, thou art a liar, arise. To be sure, I feel the contrary, but I have the word which does not deceive. Indeed, it is all in all to me. So here he's talking about Jacob, who has the promise that he's going to be the king, and yet what happens? He's sent away with nothing into exile, and yet he walks by faith, Hebrews 11 style. He doesn't have any of the things that he's promised, but he still believes he still believes the Lord. Okay? This is amazing stuff. In this manner, Holy Scripture commends the fathers and sets forth shining examples of their faith. And there is no other doctrine in the world beside Holy Scripture which teaches that faith alone conquers the world. 1 John 5. Uh, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. What does this faith consist in? This faith consists in having the word in our hearts and having no doubt about the word. Meanwhile, it simply suffers the opposite, is not crushed, is not wearied to the end. That is, until the promise comes. Now, we emphasized this last time. I want to emphasize it again here that this is not easy. I mean, it's easy enough to say, hey, faith conquers doubt. But it is not easy to do because our faith is always warring against our flesh. The spirit is always at war against our sin. And so this battle to believe and to not doubt and to hold on to the word against the contrary. This is why we need these examples of the, of the saints that have gone before us that, it, that have done it. Job stoutly endured the reproach of his wife. He replies, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? This is a very, uh, there's twice in the book of Job, and Job's going to come up here in a, a bit more, but there's twice in the book of Job where, where Job is commended, and this is one of those times, and all this Job did not sin. We receive good from the Lord. We also receive evil from the Lord. That's what Job says. If we have had life up to this time and have eaten and drunk while God nourished and supported us, why should we not also bear with some adversity? The wife of Tobias also fell. 
David remained firm and steadfast for 10 whole years, although he was king without a crown, without land, without people. Yes, he had to be declared an enemy and a rebel by the Saulites. I've never heard him called Saulites before. Those who followed Saul. Later, when Absalom drove him from his realm, he merely said, if I find favor, he will bring me back. In other words, this is this. So this is David walking by faith, a king without a crown. That's a that's a phrase to remember. That, that this is how the Lord does it. He he calls us kings without crowns. He calls us children without honor. He calls us eternal with a grave. You see, and faith clings to what God calls us in spite of what we see. It's it's tough, but that's part. This is the battle here. This is what, uh, if he says, I have no pleasure in him, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. This is what, this is what faith says, that, that the Lord can do what he would. This is what it means to hold firmly to the promise, which says, man does not live by bread alone. This is stated about faith and the promises. It must be repeated and carefully inculcated, both here and in many other places, for the flesh always resists. So there you go. I've got a couple questions that came in. One question was, what was the point again regarding Job's friends and the struggle? This is a great, um, remember that when we read through Job, uh, there's there's a lot on Job, but just real quick on this. If we read through Job, we're thinking the whole time, uh-oh, is Job going to stand or is Job going to fall? Is Job going to endure the temptation or is Job going to join the count, the demonic counsel of his friends? And we're worried the whole time until the very end when the Lord comes down and rebukes his friends and says, you have not spoken wisely as my as my uh, Job spoke wisely. So go to Job and he will offer a sacrifice for you and you will be forgiven. And it turns out that the whole business of Job was not that Job might be lost, but that the friends might be God. That now the friends belong to the altar where the sacrifice proclaims the forgiveness of sins. In other words, the whole conversation was the friend's catechism class. And at the end, they're confirmed and they come to the Lord's Supper. It's beautiful. They're rescued. <laughs> the devil was trying to get Job and he ends up losing the three friends that he was using to try to get Job. Can, can you just, in the midst of all, whoops, in the midst of all the trouble of this life, and as we are afflicted, right, as we are um especially as we feel the persecution of the world. And it seems like the devil is using people to threaten us and to come after us to remember that the Lord is probably using your suffering to get them. So when the HR person sends you a note that says you will use everyone's preferred pronouns or whatever, that we think, ah, Jesus is after them. <laughs> Matt says this is called the stewardship of pain. I think that I think that's right. How do we we have to be good stewards of our suffering? What would you recommend someone asks? What would you recommend to someone who does not seem to have that living faith, but the other, the kind of just unliving, inactive faith? The the thing that that brings life to faith is only the word and the spirit. That's why we're studying. Because all of us, our faith wants to sort of empty out. And we want to start living according to our flesh. It's the reason why we come back to the scriptures. And it's the reason why the Holy Spirit 
gave us Moses to give us Jacob so that we could see this faith. This is how this works. What happens if you don't suffer well or fail the test? Well, the Lord gives us, right? Remember, um, my my friend, Pastor Ketchemeyer on issues, etc. a couple of weeks ago said that the, the Lord has crafted a custom cross for each one of us. <laughs> so it's like a custom orthopedic. So the Lord is, is giving each one of us a degree of suffering and affliction, uh, just what we need. And sometimes we'll stumble and fall. And this also becomes an occasion for his grace. Um, Naomi asked, would you compare Job's sacrifice for his children to the sacrifices he made for his friends? They're the same. Yep. Atoning sacrifices. And I want to, and, and Luther, he, Luther thinks that Job is a cousin of Isaac. He also thinks that Balaam, remember the false prophet Balaam, is a cousin of Isaac. It's really fascinating. That's coming up. Okay. We're in a new section now. And so um, uh, here Luther's going to say an additional question arises. Um, and the question is, why did the very saintly parents, Isaac and Rebecca, send their son to idolaters? <laughs> In other words, his uncle has idols in the house. What's he going to do down there? You know. For we shall hear below that Laban had gods of silver, etc. Therefore, they hurl their son into evident danger, and by so doing, seem to be tempting God. For when I approach certain and manifest danger, then it's correct to conclude that I'm tempting God. So if I just go and I'm reckless about something, that's that's a sin, tempting God. And certainly it would be a sin to send your kids to live with pagan uncles how then can faith stand alongside that temptation by which they involve their son in the danger of idolatry and other examples of the worst kind for laban not only worshiped the silver gods but he was greedy stingy full of vices as will appear below therefore jacob could have been corrupted as a result of his association with them and could have been contaminated by many vices contrary to faith and good conduct i answer what other option was there <laughs> he had to take a wife and preparation had to be made for the government of the church in the house in other words he's got to have a family and to have a family you need a wife uh and to get a wife there has to be a lady and where's he gonna go to find a find a wife uh yoop. how come it's not clear all drawing so the canaanite women because what are the options? Uh, the Canaanite women were altogether idolatrous and had no word at all. But those in Nahor's house, some knowledge of godliness remained. For the line of or succession of the fathers from Noah up to Abraham, in which Nahor, Abraham's brother, is numbered, had the word. So now this is a, a, a kind of a nice and somewhat important part. This is, I mean, it's maybe not the main thing, but it is going to be. Of, 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 it's very interesting to me. Remember Nahor's Abraham's brother. He, the, we have the genealogy from Noah to Abraham, and that they had the word of God passed down from Noah to the fathers, Seth, and et cetera, et cetera. So it's not like Noah believed and then everyone else stopped believing, and then Abraham. It is. It's more like um, Noah, and he was handing this down, the faithfulness down, although it was clung to somewhat tenuously. They were clinging to the faith until um, 
Mm. I mean, it's kind of starting to dissolve until the Lord grabs Abraham and says, you're in. But it's not like there was total paganism altogether. For although the the church was transferred to the house of Abraham, yet the word and zeal for true godliness also remained in the family of Nahor. Uh, Although corrupted, understand. Scripture makes no further mention of the patriarch Lot, but Nahor had a family or prosperity in which Job, who was also from the land of Boaz, was born. Some contend that he was descended from Edom, but Jerome and others derive his origin from Nahor, Abraham's brother. Where, In other words, where did Job come from? This is a question. Uh, some say he was an Edomite, but Jerome says, no, he was a he was a son of Nahor, Abraham's brother, making Job a cousin of Isaac. Because he springs from the family of Nahor. They say that Balaam, this is further interest. Remember Balaam, the false prophet who comes up later, who was at first a saintly man and a godly priest, was also born from the same family, but also later, after he had been corrupted and ruined by the gifts of the kings of the Moabites, he lapsed. I think this is very interesting because I'm I've always been, been very curious about Balaam. Because remember, he's he's hired by the king to curse the Israelites, and instead of cursing them, he blesses them three times, and then he finally sets up the trap of the of the Moabite beauty queens, and they go and marry them and worship Baal. That's Baal at Peor, Numbers 24. First time Baal is mentioned, at least standalone mention of Baal, and the Lord goes back to that Baal of Peor all the way through Deuteronomy, even into Judges and Joshua. Uh, and judges, he's talking about Baal at Peor, and that was all orchestrated by Balaam, this false prophet. But he's like a false prophet who knows the true God. It's very strange. So here, Luther's picking up on this Jerome tradition that Balaam is also part of the family of Abraham. He also that he uh, they this would be Jerome and the like. They also maintain that the man who's called Elihu in Job is Balaam. Do you get that? So Elihu. Uh, the friend of uh, Job who comes at the end, that this would be the same as uh, Balaam. Whew. I don't know how you make that connection. It's very interesting. We leave these matters in doubt. In other words, we, we don't know. We can't figure it out. We can't. I mean, there's not enough the scripture to, to make it true. Nevertheless, it's reasonable to believe that this line of the patriarchs preserved the knowledge of God even outside the church of Abraham and that it remained in the pure and true religion. This is the first answer to the question. In other words, the question is, why would you send Jacob over there? And the answer is, well, they're better. They've got more of the Bible than the, than the Canaanites who have nothing of it. Secondly, even though the, the profession of sound doctrine is retained, they still remember the preaching of Noah, for example. Yet hypocrites are always close by. And now you see that Luther, I think he, there's a, little, there's a little transition here. He's talking less about Jacob. And he's talking more about how it is in the church now. Remember the these lectures were given by Luther at the end of his life. The Lutheran church is established. All the other Protestants are kind of all around fighting. This is this contest of what do we do with the true confession? Even though the profession of sound doctrine is retained, yet hypocrites are always close by. And those who are truly godly are compelled to endure in their gatherings those who serve mammon or are given to other vices. Nevertheless, they are in agreement in regard to doctrine and the use of the sacraments. So this is what Luther's talking about, the church and fellowship, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So 
they're in agreement in regard to the doctrine. They're in agreement in regard to the sacraments. And yet, they're not really godly. They're serving money. They're given to other vices. So they, they have the same confession. And yet their life is not a reflection of the work of the Holy Spirit. Now remember, or if you don't know, <laughs> you can't remember, but these two things, the agreement in regard to doctrine and the sacraments, when, when the Lutherans are asked what is required for church fellowship, these are the two things that they say. The, the, uh, the doctrine, the teaching, especially the teaching of the gospel and the sacraments. That's the, it is enough of the formula of Concord. I wasn't thinking about this, but let's just look at this here. Augsburg 7 on the church where the Lutherans say, wait, how do I make this go away? Let me make this a little bit bigger. It is sufficient for the true unity of the Christian church. So what, so what what makes true unity? That the gospel is preached in its conformity with a pure understanding of it, and that the sacraments be administered in accordance with the divine word. So th this is what this is what is required for unity, the gospel and the sacraments. So so why are the churches like why, for example, is the Lutheran Church not in fellowship with the Methodist Church? It's not because of history or politics or anything else like this. It's theology. And it's because there's a disagreement on what is the gospel and what are the sacraments. It's the same reason why the Catholics and the Lutherans are fighting with each other and why the Baptists and the Lutherans are fighting with each other. Now, other people might be fighting for other reasons. Like other people might have other disagreements. But the gospel and the sacraments are, for us, the things that that um, that mark the unity of the church. Someone says that if could the gospel be the whole word? I've heard it yell suppression. You can't you can't deny the authority of the word and still cling to the gospel. So the gospel is connected to the word of God. And if someone is doubting the word of God in one place, then we wonder what happens in another place, and it has to do with faith, etc. So this is all this all fits together as a piece. But this is what Luther's go, this is why Luther's talking about here. The uh, the their agreement in regard to the doctrine and the sacraments but the problem is they're not living as christians they're christians in name only stino <laughs> christian in name whoops what what what's going on christians in name only because they do not fight against and persecute the doctrine they let the doctrine stand but they have their own carnal wisdom they live mostly for the belly. If one had to beware of all those and live only with God people, where there godly people, where there are no hypocrites, then we would have to go out of the world altogether, as Paul says. The church cannot prevent hypocrites, that is, false brethren, from being in their gatherings, provided that they do not attack the doctrine and condemn us, as the Babylonians did in the days of Abraham provided that they let us live with them and let us teach the truth. I do not know what the Babylon... I, I do not know why Luther is talking about the Babylonians 
at the in the time of Abraham. If someone knows that, please let me know in the chat. Uh, the Babylonians come up much later in the history. So I don't wonder if this, if Babylonians means like those who were living in Ur. So this would be like pre-Babylonian society. So the, maybe he's talking about Haran, et cetera, where, the family where Jacob's going to live. Provided they let us live with them and let us teach the truth. So as long as they allow it, that's fine. In fact, there's a line from, from um, Philip Melanchthon where he says, when he signs onto Luther's small cult articles, you want to see it? I'll show it to you. I got it right here. Uh, at the end of small cult, where they're all signing, is it? It's where Melanchthon, um, yeah, here. So here I fill, here's what Melanchthon says. I, Philip Melanchthon, regard the above articles as right and Christian. However, concerning the Pope, I hold that if he would allow the gospel, just allow it. We too may concede to him that superiority over the bishops, which he possesses by human rights, making this concession for the sake of peace and general unity among the Christians who are now under him and who may be in the future. So it's, so now this is an interesting. Can you just allow the preaching of the gospel? Now, if I think if you is an interesting historical question, if you ask Melanchthon, would is it possible for the Pope to allow the preaching of the gospel? Melanchthon would have said yes, and Luther would have said no. Because Luther understood that the corruption went all the way down to the heart. There's a there's a thing here. There's a there's two there's two different ways of seeing doctrine. I can't think if I've talked about this. I, can, I don't know how to explain it. Um, there's a way that we think of, we're tempted to think of doctrine like a seven-layer dip. Like you have the foundation, which is like God exists, and then the Trinity, and then the two natures of Christ, and then salvation by grace through faith, and then baptism and the Lord's Supper. Like there's different layers of doctrine. And we're like, well, we agree with you on these fundamental things, but we don't agree on like the toppings. But we're, and and we and we draw a line there. Like, if you have like the beans and the meat, then you have the Trinity and the Incarnation. Then that's Christianity. And then the sour cream is the, um, like the doctrine of salvation. And then the sacraments are. That most so most people understand that the theology like that, but we, the Lutheran doctrine is a, a piece. It all fits together. It's like uh, it's it's like you, it's if you have an error in baptism, it shows up in your doctrine of the Trinity, or if you have an error in the doctrine of the Trinity, it shows up in your doctrine of baptism it's all it's all a piece it's this is why the lutherans have a huge problem with talking about um uh non-essential doctrines because it's there's no way for them to like here's another here's an example in the reformed church you can have reformed baptists and reformed presbyterians and for them, do you baptize babies? It's like it, you can be, you can have a 
you can say Christ is truly present or the Lord's Supper is a symbolic meal and you can still be reformed. In other words, reformed is like, I don't know, it's like the middle of the dip and then the extra stuff is kind of variable. But there's you cannot be Lutheran and not baptize babies. It's all of a, it's all a piece. String of pearls, someone says. I, I wish I knew how to teach that better. I right, keep figuring out. All right. Okay. Uh, so this is this allow. If you just allow us to preach the gospel, it's fine. That's all we're asking for. You don't. You just don't have to persecute the doctrine. Hmm. Indeed. Uh, indeed, let them be slaves of mammon and have their own opinions, provided they remain quiet and keep faith in the public peace. In other words, do whatever sort of hypocritical life stuff you want is just. If they are true enemies, they will burst forth with the result that they either will no longer be willing to endure us or they will be not be able to we will not be able to live with them. But we can we cannot guard against those hypocrites. There's some hope that they can be improved. This is also I look, I Luther is optimistic, and I am too. When you this is one of the problems with I think with the uh, with the way that we think today, it's kind of like an we're we're like we're the, the mirror image of, op, of of the evolutionists. Evolutionism thinks that everything's getting better and better and better. And we're like, well, you're right, but exactly wrong. We think everything's getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And it's getting worse and it's going to keep getting worse. Well, maybe, but you don't know that. And neither do I. I mean, we do know that when the Lord Jesus returns at the end of time, is he going to find faith? It's going to be tough. But, but here's the point. I've been reading through Chronicles. There's a good king. And then there's a bad king. And then there's a good king. And then there's a bad thing, king. And things go well and things go poorly. And things go well and things go poorly. It's back and forth. It's not just a this steady, constant decline, like some sort of reverse evolution. No. So things are bad. It seems like they're getting worse. Fine. What of it? Why not think that they're going to get better? Why not think that that things will be better for marriage and the family in 50 years from now? There's nothing that guarantees that we're on this, how do we say it? We're on a, going to hell in a handbasket? No, we're not permit. We, the Lord changes things. He changes people. He changed you. We should have this, and, and we should have a long enough memory. I mean, remember, just imagine if you were in the church, if we were having a worldwide Bible study in 1515. Hmm? And it, it just and 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 we're sitting there worldwide Bible, and we're like, man, this is really a disaster. The church is all teaching works. Nobody believes what we believe about God's grace, etc. And it's just getting worse and worse and worse. Well, then things changed, and all of a sudden the gospel. Pew, it's great. Anyway, we're not we're not permitted to be pessimistic. We have to we have to be hopeful. People, always the pessimists say, I'm not pessimistic, I'm realistic. Okay, also known as pessimistic. But look at, we, uh, uh, there's some hope that they can be improved. We see hypocrites in the church, and what do we say? Ah, hypocrite's going to hypocrite. Belly worshiper's going to belly worship. That's just how it goes. No, the Lord is after them. Uh, in regard to him who's greedy or given to other vices, feels his sin, does not defend it, we have hope that he can be corrected. 
Repentance is always there. The Lord is always working repentance. There was a, I was reading Chronicles today. Where was this? Let's see. The very last chapter of Second Chronicles, and it talks about how the Lord, uh, the Lord sent the prophets and that and to send the rebuke, and that was His kindness. Uh, let's just see here. Where was it? Maybe it was. Uh, Hold on. Let me just look real quick so I don't have to. 3615. 2 Chronicles 3615. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look at this. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, the prophets. Why? Because he had compassion on his people and his dwelling place. Now, you guys are like, well, yeah, but look at what happened next. They kept mocking the messengers, despising his words, scoffing the prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people. They're like, ah, that's my favorite. Well, okay, fine. But look at this. The Lord has compassion. That's why he sends prophets to rebuke them. In Always for the gift of repentance, always for the gift of, uh, of turning around, of changing the mind so that the Lord can bless. Okay. Um, ooh, I'm missing a lot of chat. We'll have to come back to all that later. All right, let's do a little more Luther here. A kind of foolishness or weakness is characteristic of this life and of human nature. We cannot be perfect in every respect, in all respects. For according to the flesh, we cannot do what the Spirit wants. Flesh and spirit, always duking it out. For this reason, we pray, and this is what Luther's saying. Look, you're you're worried about the hypocrites in the church. Also you. Also you. For this reason, we pray, forgive us our debts. We do not defend sins. We do not sow errors and false opinions instead of true doctrine. But every Christian is harassed by the devil in the flesh. And he acknowledges the wickedness and the corruption of his nature. As Paul complains about himself in Romans 7, 19, the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, the key thing in Romans 7, well, not the key thing, but one of the things to understand in Romans 7 is which side of the battle is the I on? Remember, we have the flesh fighting against the spirit. And which is the I? Does the eye belong to the flesh? No. The eye belongs to the spirit. The evil I do not want is what I do. Thus Nahor retained the promises made to the fathers. So this is back to the back to the history here. Nahor retained the promises made to the fathers, although not so purely as Abraham, who had been separated from them in order that he might be the father of the church. Yet he, Nahor, had some light. Therefore, Jacob could not have found a better place to which, which to betake himself. Uh, everyone here is required to use the word betake at least once this week. I'll be checking next week. Uh, the, common, uh, the common saying that one must plow with oxen if there are no horses must be observed. For we're human beings, and as human beings, we are compelled to put up with those who, even if they sin, are nevertheless willing to be admonished and corrected. 
Therefore, it's not without, it is not tempting God to associate with men like Laban, with whom Jacob lived. Undoubtedly, many from this house of Nahor were saved, because among the other nations, they were a kind of light by teaching and propagating the true knowledge of God. Thus, Job was an honorable man. So were the friends of Job. Balaam was a most honorable prophet. And in the beginning, he was truly godly and had special gifts of the Spirit. In the beginning, he blessed the people of Israel truly and properly. Later, the devil corrupted him. This is how it can happen that the pure and sound doctrine remains even when those who were sound at first have been corrupted. This is... Uh, this is how this goes. As citizens, therefore, what, what time is it here? Oh, as citizens, um, let me look how we're doing. Let's roll through a few more paragraphs and then we'll uh, call it quits because I, boy, there's a lot chatting. As citizens, therefore, we cannot avoid association with those who are manifestly godless. The church could not avoid the tyranny of the Romans. Abraham could not keep away from Ur. But when I know that a person is greedy and openly inflicts a wrong on others, steps must be taken to prevent him from being admitted to the church and to communion. From this, he can and should be excluded. This, therefore, is the way one can reply to the question why Isaac and Rebekah sent their son to Haran. They did so because the people there still agreed with them partly in doctrine, even though they too had their faults. And there was continuous and constant friendship between Nahor and Abraham and their descendants. At the time, they were lights, so to speak, of that age. They, not the Chaldeans, had the promise of the word. But where the ministry of the word is, there the church is. Conversely, where the true church is, there the word is. Woo! But let, the, but let us look at the words in the grammar. For these words are spoken with much feeling and indicate great sadness, namely, that after Jacob had been appointed a ruler and heir, he leaves Beersheba and sets out for distant Haran, but everyone can make his own guess with what great grief the good and saintly patriarch was smitten. He undoubtedly traversed that long journey with many tears, with frequent sighs and sobs, for he fled in secret that he might hide himself from the fury of his brother Esau, lest Esau pursue him, seize him on the journey, and do him some violence. Therefore, he sets out alone, without a servant, without a guide or companion. It certainly is great misery to go into exile and darkness in this way to depart from father and mother, to leave that most pleasant association with his parents, and to allow his furious brother, together with his wives, to rule during his absence on that journey. Furthermore, Jacob was a human being, subject to human feelings, just as we are. Indeed, the more spiritual he was, the more the wickedness of very evil men, likewise his own sins and troubles, affected and tormented his heart. For saintly men are very tender and are more and are moved more deeply than those stocks and logs, the monks and self-righteous. Therefore, Jacob's departure was sad and troublesome enough that without the danger which threatened from his brother, it was not a pleasant promenade, nor did he rest or proceed more slowly as men do who feel secure and are safe from all snares. No, he hurried, he ran. Nor did his parents give him a companion in order that he might more easily conceal his departure from his brother Esau, for Esau could have blocked his way and killed Jacob as he had decided. But Moses uses a figure which they call hysterion, proteon. Uh, that's a uh, some sort of figure of speech. Jacob fled before Esau discovered that he had fled. So, so, so that this picture of Jacob running by himself out into the wilderness weeping, escaping for his life, leaving his family behind. 
Finally, the fiery darts, we'll finish with this paragraph. Finally, the fiery darts of the devil were added to this great perturbation of his heart. In this way, the devil incited him to think, behold, what have I done? I've seized the blessing of my brother. I've disturbed the house. I've enraged my brother and his whole household and relationship. Undoubtedly, Jacob was not free from this trial. And although he overcame these trials, they nevertheless greatly tormented and distressed his heart. Accordingly, the saintry patriarch proceeded on his way in this great grief and unrest with worries and tears. For every circumstance was of such a nature that there was every reason for it to wring tears from him. So Jacob leaves, leaves the family's house uh, into exile with great sadness. And we'll stop there because the Lord is now going to come and bless him. Remember, Whoa. <laughs> that's going to be the, that's going to be the, the Bethel story coming up next. All right, let's, uh, let's stop there with a prayer. Cause I want to take some time to get to some of these questions that you guys have. It looks like there's a lot happening in the chat. So, so let's pray. And then, uh, and we'll all jump on and sort out what's happening. Oh Lord, we pray that you would strengthen our own faith by your word and spirit so that we would have the confidence uh, to um, to live in this life of exile uh, with your word and promises, knowing that you tell the truth. Grant this to us for Christ's sake. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Well, let me mention this too before we shut down the video, and that is that if you don't have a church um, where you are going, if you go to wolfmuller.co, I'll show you this. There's a way to, we have a little thing here, which is help me find a local congregation, wolfmuller.co slash find a church. And you just put your name, your email, and your zip code or whatever, and submit that. And we got a team of folks who will help find a local congregation too, so that you can go to your pastor's Bible class this week. All right, thanks.